Good morning. Our passage this morning is found in Esther, uh, chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible this morning, I invite you to raise your hand, and one of our ushers will bring you one. Um, And if you don't have one in your life, then feel free to keep it. Um, Yeah, so uh, as they're handing those out, in case you're unsure how to find the book of Esther, it's a little small book here. If you have one of our Bibles, it's actually on page 410. Uh, If not, it's just after Nehemiah and just before Job, which is right before the Psalms. So uh, you can kind of find it that way. So like I said, we're in Esther chapter 1, verses 1 to 22. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and the governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his great greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violent hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to, to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, and mother of pearl and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds. And the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbara, Bigtha, and Abaktha, Zephthar and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of the king Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown, in order to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come to the king at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure during all who were vested in the, in the law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshina, Shethar, Amatha, Tarshish, Maris, Marcina, and Memucan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of the king Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. Then Memucan, and in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against the officials and all the peoples who are in the prov- all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials. 
and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may be may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memochan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in his own script, and to every people in his own language, that every man be master of his own household, and speak according to the language of his people. This is the word of the Lord. Is that good? Can you hear me? All right, this is the story of the Jews before Esther. The Jews speak of a time that a mighty enemy descended upon their holy temple because they had rebelled against God. Jeremiah 1.16 I will declare my judgments against them for their evil in forsaking me. For they have made offerings to other gods and worshipped the works of their own hands. In his anger, God turned his people over to a fearsome enemy, Nebuchadnezzar, who would be known as the dragon of Babylon. Through him, the fury of God burned against his people. Jeremiah fifty-one thirty-four. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has devoured me. He has crushed me. He has made me an empty vessel. He has swallowed me up like a dragon. The tears of the Jews flowed like a river, but they did not put out the fires that now consume their land. So into the wilderness they were sent, defeated and destroyed, fearing that God had forsaken them just as they had forsaken him. But even in their darkest moment, God did not leave or forsake the Jews. Instead, once again, he made them a promise. Jeremiah three twelve through 14. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord your God. I will take you, one from a city, two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. For 70 years, the people of God lived in Babylon. Over time, Babylon began to wither, and a great enemy rose in the east, Cyrus, the king of Persia. His armies consumed the world. He set his sights on what remained of the dragon Nebuchadnezzar's lair, Babylon. There, Cyrus led a lethal attack and Babylon fell. 
But Cyrus was a great and good king, and he did not believe in keeping men as slaves, so he issued a decree that freed the Jews. Through this newfound freedom, God stirred the hearts of his most devoted followers, which inspired them to journey back to Jerusalem to rebuild his temple. Ezra 1.14 Let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold and goods and with beasts beside freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Eventually, Cyrus went the way of most men and was killed by the sword. Daniel 11.2 Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up against the kingdom of Greece. His name was... His name was Xerxes the Great. Under him the empire prospered, as did the Jews, but they did not return to Jerusalem. Among the Jews was a family from the tribe of Benjamin. They gathered all they could and headed out of Babylon to find the richest city the world had ever known, the Persian capital of Zuza. During this journey, a mother and a father died leaving their baby girl in the care of a cousin whose name was Mordecai. Little did Mordecai know that this little baby girl would grow to be the woman named Esther, a woman the world would never forget, a woman who would become the savior of the Jews. Well, it's good to be together uh, this morning and to be starting a new teaching series in the book of Esther. One thing I often forget, and maybe you have forgotten this too, is that the scriptures is really one large story. Do you realize that? Sometimes we think of certain stories and we think of them as, oh, this is one story here and one story here and one story here. But the reality is, is that all of these stories are part of one larger story, which is the entire story of the scriptures and the Bible that we have uh, sitting for many of us today to study, to know, and to learn. Uh, over the last about eight or eight to ten years, I've been reading the Bible through uh, every single year. And different years, I do different things. And one of the ways that I've read it is through a chronological reading. So it, what scholars have done is they've looked at, okay, what, what happened first and then what happened last? And if you do this, what you see within the scriptures is a, a grand storyline which goes along this way. Creation, you can write this down, creation, fall, redemption, and then restoration. So in the first couple pages of the scriptures, we read about creation, how God created the earth and everything in it. We then very quickly see that human beings sin and they turn against God, which then unleashes the realities of what you and I experience today. Pain, death, suffering, feelings of being alone, feelings of wondering, where is God? And at this point, God could have said to his people, I'm going to leave you to yourselves. But instead, what we read about God is he pursues his people. 
We get to Genesis 12, and God calls out a man named Abraham, and he says, Abraham, actually his first name, his name starts as Abram, becomes Abraham, through you the nations of the world will be blessed. And so what we see is God chooses a group of people who will eventually become the Israelites. And as the story goes, the Israelites have this long lineage and history of eventually disobeying God. Uh, They end up in Egypt. Exodus tells us the story how God frees them from slavery in Egypt and gives them the land of Canaan. We then read about how Israel wants a king, and God says, but I am your king. And they say, no, we want a king like the nations around us. And so God says, okay. You can have a king, and if your king serves me and submits to me, then I will bless you. But if your king does not, then you will be overtaken, and you will go into exile. And this is exactly what happens. And you can read the pages of Samuel King's First and Second Chronicles, and what you read is all of these lines of kings that disobey God. And then something happens. In 586 BC, the Jews of Judah are carried into exile by a Babylonian king named Nebuchadnezzar. And the Jews in this situation are asking, God, where are you? And God simply points out, what has happened here is simply what I warned you would happen. You disobeyed me. You've gone into exile. And then we have this Jeremiah 29 verse 11, which all of us love having. And some of us uh, tattoo it on our bodies or put it as our, on our walls. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Now, that's not written to you and to me. Of course, we understand that God has plans, and we're going to study that through this series. But the initial reading and the initial telling of that is to the Israelite people in exile under foreign rule, under foreign powers. And God is saying, for I know the plans I have for you. It's going to mean exile and captivity for the next number of years, but eventually I'm going to bring you out of it. So the next time you read that verse, remember, this is in a, this is in a time of exile. And then we read, and as Liv told us, there is a king that rises up in Persia who comes in and conquers Babylon And as a result, he now has the rule and reign over these exiled Jews. And so we actually read in the scriptures, this is the first time a pagan king is called the anointed. And what Cyrus does is he commands the Jews to go back home, and he actually pays for the temple to be rebuilt, for the walls to be rebuilt. But believe it or not, the majority of the Jews do not go back to Jerusalem, and a large portion of them actually stay under Persian rule in these other cities and provinces. And so as years are going on, what we see here is that the Jews begin asking this question. Where is God? We've heard stories in the past of how God freed our people from Egypt. We've heard stories of kings like Saul and David. We've heard stories of how God has miraculously done incredible things in our history. We've heard that through, the, through our lineage and through our history that we are going to be, the world is going to be blessed through us. Yet here they are sitting under Persian rule, under Cyrus, who has paid for everything, ultimately to control them. And they're asking the question, is God still going to be faithful to our people? Is God still going to be faithful to me? Is God still going to be faithful to you even though we've broken the covenant? And as you actually go through the scriptures in the Old Testament, as you follow it chronologically, God is very present in the beginning pages, and then over time, he slowly removes himself. 
And then we get to the point of redemption. Jesus Christ, and God is not only this distant story, God is live in the flesh. And then ultimate restoration, which we are all still awaiting. So this is, this is the storyline. I have a bit of a timeline to show you uh, on the screen this morning. So you can go online, likely find this. But this is just shows us a bit of the timeline. Like this is actual history, people. These aren't just nice little stories that we read to our kids at bedtime. This is actual history. B.C. 560, Cyrus the Great becomes king of Persia, conquers Babylon. 539, Cyrus allows Jews to return to Jerusalem. 538, BC, jump down with me over here. This is where the story of Esther picks up. Xerxes I, Ahasuerus, becomes king. 480 BC, Xerxes defeats the Greeks at Thermophilae, but is later defeated at Salmis. The Greeks defeat the Persians in the battle. So here is actual history. And we have to keep this in mind. And as we're reading the story of Esther, we have to remember that the great theme that is being shown to you and to me is that God is faithful to his people. Because if we don't read it that way, what we're going to do is we're going to start pulling out things that were never intended to be pulled out. The story of Esther never mentions God. It mentions fasting at one point. But other than that, it never actually mentions God. There's actually some commentators, Martin Luther actually said, the story of Esther should be removed from from the Bible. John Calvin didn't write a commentary on it for many, many years. It's an interesting story because God is never mentioned. But this story is celebrated still by Jewish people today. They have a holiday called Purim, in which they celebrate their release and their being saved by Esther. So what does a book in the scriptures that had nothing to do or mentions God have to do with you and me? Well, I think the reality of the story of Esther is many of our experiences where we've maybe heard of God working and moving in the lives of people around us. Where we've read the the miracle stories in the Bible or, or heard the stories in the Old Testament of God freeing his people from slavery. Or maybe in your life, you're like, I I never really actually experienced the miraculous or what could be defined as the miraculous. So God is maybe a logical thing and Christianity is a, a logical or a reasoned position to have in this world, but the supernatural and miraculous, I don't actually experience. We're under foreign rule. We're under the liberal government. You might be asking questions, there is an agenda here. What are we to do? What are we to say? Is God still in control? Is he still faithful to his people? So if that is you, welcome to Esther. Let's jump in. Esther 1 verse 1. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel. Now, Ahasuerus is also known as Xerxes the Great. I have a couple pictures of the guy. You ready? Boom. Let's see him. Where is he? Woohoo! So beard friends, uh, you will be very encouraged by uh, Xerxes the Great. This is Xerxes the Great. He's remembered as the tallest, most handsome, ambitious, ruthless, and brilliant warrior. And he was also a jealous lover. Ooh. At the time, at the time, 
the Persian Empire, I have a picture of the Persian Empire, had 127 provinces, four capital cities. Susa was simply one of these capital cities. And so the story of Esther takes place within this empire. This is vast. Uh, you can see I have a little pointer. This is Susa. I'm sorry I'm doing a little bit of shaky-shaky, but my arm is, not my body. This is Susa. Susa is located actually in present-day Iran. So this is real life, real things. We can study this stuff in the history books. King of Persia, we can study Cyrus. The crown jewel of this city was the palace, which was located on a high mound on the west side of the city with a garden which allowed cross breeze. And this is where the king would most likely spend his winter and his spring. So here's a replica or drawing of what this palace may have looked like. What's going on here and what we're supposed to understand is as the writer of Esther is sharing this story with the first Jewish readers is this is the power of Persia. This is the power of Xerxes. And where is God in the midst of this power? Let's go on. In the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were all before him. While he showed the riches of his glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. Now let's quickly do the math. Six months. Woo! Six months. Now, as we study history, there's a bit of a war conflict history. Early in Xerxes' reign, an Egyptian revolt erupted, followed by two rebellions in Babylon. These were crushed quickly, but the real threat would come from Greece. A second invasion would be led in history by Xerxes. And the events in Esther take place after the Egypt and Babylon revolt, but before the invasion of Greece, when Ahasuerus is in his mid-30s. He actually became king at the age of 32. So why this is important, the connection needs to be made, is that this corresponds, as we look at history, with the Great War Council of 482 BC held to plan for the Persian invasion of Greece. So this is the purpose of the six-month party, gathering the officials, gathering all the leaders across the Persian Empire, let them see how powerful I am, so that when I call them to go into battle against Greece, they'll come. So let's get them drunk, let's get them wasted, let's party on. Because if they can understand how powerful I am, then they'll have no problem following me into battle. So this is the purpose of this six-month feast. Let's keep going. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. And then we get this list and this description of, of, of this palace. Now, this is actually a little bit interesting because it's unusual for the biblical narrative. The only other time in the scriptures that we get such a lavish description of what is going on is when we're described the temple in Jerusalem. So this is a little bit odd, and it's also a little bit strange because as an early Jew reading this, after these events have taken place, they know, get this, they know that Xerxes is no longer in power. So for them, you have to notice the satire and a bit of the irony in this of, wow, they're describing this super powerful guy, but guess what? That guy's no longer in power. So it's a bit of this oddity of what's going on. So here, we have this six-month feast, and then Xerxes isn't done. Everyone else like pushes over, goes back home. I'm going to throw another seven-day feast for the people that live here in Susa. The people that have essentially been hosting this lavish feast for all of this time. 
He commands them that you're to drink without restriction. Drink, no compulsion. Drink as much as you want. It's essentially describing an enormous frat party. We read that Queen Vashti has another, another party. And what's going on here in Oriental antiquity, men and women do not associate with one another in this sort of fashion. And so Vashti is hosting her party for the people within the city. And Xerxes is holding his party. And we're getting this description because once again, it's trying to display, and what Xerxes is trying to display to all of these people is, look how powerful I am. Look at all the things I'm willing to do for you. And if I'm willing to do this for you, when we go to battle, you better be willing to go to battle with me. Now, let's return to the grand arcing narrative and theme of this story. Where is God? Xerxes is on his throne, but is God on his? Where is he? We've heard stories, but where is he? And the question that then we can apply to ourselves, where is God amidst the reigning ideologies and powers of our world? Like, where is God amidst of Syria and Iraq? And so these same questions as we go throughout history are being asked. God, where are you? And how are we to live? And what are we to do? Because this passage wants us to see Xerxes the Great. Notice how that's his name in history. He wants to be known as Xerxes the Great. Let's keep going. On the seventh day... When the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abakatha, Zathar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of the king, Ahasuerus. A eunuch was a castrated male who was to serve as security over the king's harem. He was castrated so that he wouldn't go after the women and couldn't impregnate them. This is again another position of power that the king would have over his people. You think you want to be attracted to these women? I'm going to castrate you so you can't. Interesting. Power. This is in the scriptures. So he asks this question. Go get Queen Vashti. Bring her before me. In order to show the peoples and princes her beauty. For she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Xerxes the Great is upset. Now, it might be interesting that the first thing we read is that he's merry with wine. Now, here's an interesting thing that we learned from history from Herodotus, who was a historian, said this. Moreover, it is there, speaking of the Persians, custom to deliberate about the gravest matters when they are drunk. <laughs> and whatever they approve in their councils is proposed to them the next day by the master of the house where they deliberate. When they are now sober, and if being sober, they still approve it, they are thereon, but if not, they cast it aside. And when they have taken counsel about a matter when sober... They decide upon it when they are drunk. Brilliant. Now, the interesting thing to note about why they did this is because the ancients believed that they were closer to the spiritual world when they were wasted. It's not too far from some pantheists that would believe that if they go on LSD, they might become enlightened. I've been reading the Steve Jobs biography, and he, as a young guy, did lots of drugs, went on a tour to India for in the hopes that he would become enlightened. 
This is the same sort of thing that the Persians believed. If I'm drunk, we'll make actually better decisions because we might be more in line with what the spirits want of us. Okay. <laughs> I guess that's the thing. And the king commands. Now he's had this big frat party with all these guys, seven days. Bring in Vashti. Now this was common to bring in someone like a concubine, another woman that the king had control over. But to bring in the queen was quite odd. Maybe he feels like in order to bring in his queen, this would bring up some patriotism or more loyalty. But ultimately what he's trying to say to them, look who I have. Look what I've got. You see what the king is doing, and we can't, let's just stop for a second. It would be easy for us to sit here and point at the king and go, you're a terrible human being. But how many times do we exploit the beauty or resources of other people for our own glory and purposes? How often do we exploit other people, their beauty, their gifts, and talents for our purposes? Pornography? I'll exploit this person's beauty in order for my glory and what I want? We could say that much of the way that we consume our goods, taking advantage of the poor of the world to make our clothing so that we can look good in our clothing here, And I could simply go along the list. So listen to me. It's not enough to simply go, look at Xerxes. What a jerk. Let's look at ourselves. Because his human condition is the same one as our human condition. How can I take advantage of what is mine and exploit it for myself? Now Vashti, (laughs) how dare she? She has more self-respect than to let her husband do such a thing. A Gentile pagan is refusing her husband's request, which really is setting up, get this in the large span of the story, what will later come with Esther having the king obey her. Ooh, good story. Now Xerxes' response, he's angry. He needed his men to obey and go into war, and he can't even get his wife to obey in his own palace. Do you notice the satire here? Do whatever I want. Oh, wife, come, show off yourself to my men. Nope, not doing it. So what does he do? We've got to solve this. And so what he does is he calls together his political advisors. Now, uh, as we study history, there were seven advisors that served the king, and they were the only ones that were actually allowed to come in and see the king without being requested. And so he calls his seven advisors. Now, the interesting thing about this, again, it's a satire and irony, and we're supposed to laugh, okay? So so if you're sitting there like, well, this is all pretty serious. No, laugh. It's supposed to be funny. He does. He takes a personal matter that should have been between himself and his wife, and he wants to make it political. So he calls in his political advisors. So rather than dealing with it in a personal, personal way, he makes it a public affair. He makes a family matter into a matter of the state, an irrevocable royal decree rather than personal reconciliation. This reveals the arrogance of Xerxes and his council who are portrayed as thinking they can control circumstances by decreeing their wishes. Well, then somebody steps up, names Memukin, and he says, King, 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 I have an idea. When the women of the states and the provinces hear about this, they're going to lose it. And they're now going to like disrespect their husbands and not obey them. 
So what I think you should do is you should make a big uh, issue of this and you should say to Vashti, well, Vashti, you're no longer allowed to come see the king. Notice Vashti didn't want to come see the king in the first place. So she's actually getting what she wanted. King, tell her she can't come. Oh, and also, we should let everybody know, we should send out a decree that if anybody wants to step up and disrespect their husbands, yeah, they can't do that. The men are the rulers in the home. So again, think about this, this is the irony here. They didn't initially want it to become public. Remember, he's saying in the story, he says, let's make sure, I, I'm worried that everybody else will find out about this. So rather than continuing to keep it private, they say, no, let's let everybody know about it, and then we'll add this decree that men have to rule their houses. Do you see what they're doing? It's, it's complete satire and irony. I have a quote here from Karen Jobes who says this, if a man has to command a woman to respect him, then whatever respect is so surrendered loses its meaning. Those who gain respect and obedience only by holding enough power to command it live with the constant anxiety of losing it. <laughs> and little does the king know that Vashti will be replaced by a queen that will not only refuse him, but control him. So what can we surmise from what we've studied so far? This scene is purposed to express the inner workings of the Persian monarchy and indicates patterns and pre precedents that will follow. So the author is opening up the story to us to say, this is how the Persian court acts and exists. Secondly, the author of Esther is revealing the workings of worldly power and mocking its inability to determine the destiny of God's people. And the author is also showing how unlikely it will be for Esther to rise to power and save her people as she is a Jewish woman who ends up outwitting Persian men. Fascinating. So this is what's going on in these first 22 chapters, or 22 verses of the first chapter of Esther. Now, what do we do with this? Neat story. Cool stuff. What are the things that we need to be thinking about or what can we apply from this story? Number one, absolute earthly power is dangerous and deceptive because it does not take into consideration an all-powerful God. You can go back and maybe you like history. I know I like history a little bit. If you like history, you could probably stand up and give us a breakdown of all of the times in human history where some earthly power felt like they had absolute power. You know, we could go immediately. I read the uh, biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer by Eric McTaxix a couple of years ago. Excellent stuff. Talking about uh, the Hitler rise and Bonhoeffer himself being a Christian minister asking the question, what do I do? Because at one point, Hitler was saying, you cannot have Jews in your churches. The church was trying to take over the state. And so the question was, what are we to do? Well, absolute or earthly power is dangerous, one, because it believes that it has ultimate control. It's deceptive because we read in the scriptures that all human authority is subject to God's authority. Romans 13 verse 1 
says this, and this is a challenge to you and to me in light of the situation and circumstances we live. Let every person be subject to, to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist, exist have been instituted by God. What? 1 Peter 2, verses 13 to 15. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So what do we need to do in a culture, in a government, in a society? We're to honor our governing authorities, pray for them, and do good. Why? Because we believe that you can believe earthly power, that you have it all, but you're simply subject to God. And as you look back over human history, you go, wow. Like as we look at that that exile, wow, what, what God was setting up with then sending Christ? Wow. He was there. He was doing something. And the interesting thing is, in order for us and for you and me to understand God, we have to look at the sun. We have to look at the sun. Now, in light of the fact that we are concerned, and what do we do amidst this power? This is what one person uh, said. You've probably heard it before from Edmund Burke. He said this, The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. This is what led Bonhoeffer to stand up and to try to do something. So while we do good, we also do good in light of not, not just the, the position of, well, they're in control, so like, we'll just take it and like, we won't worry about anything. We'll just do whatever they say. Just because our government says it's okay to end a human life before it's come out of the womb does not believe, mean that we do it. Just, be, just because the government is going to say it's okay to end your life before you actually die physically does not believe that we need to agree with that. Just because the government's eventually going to say that it's okay to get high does not mean that we go along with it and say, yeah, it's okay to get high. Because God is our reigning power and authority. Not the government. And in this, we serve. So we don't completely just lose ourselves in it, we still step, step up and we still do good. Now, how are we to wield power in our world? What are we to do? Well, the, in order to understand God, as I said, we have to look at Jesus the Son. Look at, let's look at Jesus' use of power. Mark 10, verses 45, says this. It's going to be on the screen. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Philippians 2, verses 5 to 8. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. So how are we to wield our power. We're to wield our power the way Jesus wielded his, which was serving, which was giving his life as a ransom for others. Karen Job says this in her commentary, the contemporary significance of this passage calls Christians to be worthy of the personal power that each of us holds by wielding that power as Jesus wielded his.
And it'd be very easy to give in to the, the ideologies or the powers of the world and say, well, look at the way they're wielding their power. They're trying to get back at people all the time. They're trying to fight. Yes, there might be a time where we need to stand up and say, this is what we believe. But how are we also serving? How are we dying to ourselves? Because Jesus was put to death by a Roman government that didn't agree with what he was teaching. And by a Jewish people that was trying to, and Jewish leaders that were trying to gain back their power. What does he do? He submits himself to death. So the question is, how are you living amidst this reign and this rule? Are you serving the people around you and our city and our government in a way that Jesus served within his own? And then the second reality that this text gives us is pointing to Jesus. One of the the chapters that I read for research was, the title was, Will the Real King Please Stand Up? Who is the king that is to be displayed through Esther chapter 1? It's not Xerxes, because he's deceived. And all this puts in light, and it goes, no, look at the true king. And so you might be here today, and you might be saying, you know, I don't know who I serve. Would you rather serve Xerxes, Justin Trudeau, go through the lines of things, or would you rather serve someone who went to die on the cross for you, to give you eternal life. Not life that ends when you die here, but continues forever. You see, Christians, we don't need to fear death because Jesus has given us eternal life. So while your physical body in this life will die, you live eternally with Christ. I remember working with a guy who lived a couple doors down from me uh, a couple years ago, and it was a bit of a shady situation. And I was going into situations that you would, could say are maybe a little bit dangerous. And these, these people in this house would oftentimes try to intimidate me. And uh, the person that I'd go to that house to visit would always tell them, you know, you can't intimidate him because he's not scared of death. And they're like, what? You can't intimidate him because he's not scared of death because he knows where he's going if he dies. Do you live in the same way? You see, Christ says that suffering is part of the Christian life. If we're to become more like Jesus, look how Jesus died. He suffered. The Christian life involves suffering, and there will be things that we're not just going to be marginalized as Christians. We'll begin to be mocked as Christians. And there will be a point where we'll have to say, do I align with Christ and what he teaches, or I align with other things? But as we align ourselves with Christ, we don't have to be fearful because he's gone to the cross for us. He's already won. Notice the story of the scriptures is not done at redemption. Jesus comes. The story of the scriptures is restoration. Where he returns. Where he brings in his own. And then justice comes. You know, the fascinating, wonderful thing about the Christian storyline and the Christian gospel is that we serve a just God. So there is Justice that will be served to people who don't follow and love him or in this world bring on their power to abuse the rights of other people. Like there, you are not going to ultimately have to face me. You're going to ultimately have to face God. 
In First Peter, uh, Nick and I in our DNA were studying a couple weeks ago, and it says, if the people around you malign you for following Christ, don't worry, because they ultimately don't answer to you. They ultimately answer to God. So let him take care of it. Second point we, need, we can notice from this passage, passage is God works through providence in the unlikeliest of places. Now, what do I mean by providence? And we're going to look at providence as we go through this entire book. This is what I mean by providence. It's that God, in some invisible and inscrutable way, governs all creatures, actions, and circumstances through the normal and ordinary course of human life without the intervention of the miraculous. All right, let me read that again for those of us that sometimes need things twice. God, in some invisible and inscrutable way, governs all creatures, actions, and circumstances through the normal and the ordinary course of human life without the intervention of the miraculous. Brian Gregory says this of our passage today. It's going to come up on the screen. Even in the inner politics of the Persian court, God is acting. He is already orchestrating things to fall into their proper place and all of it for a greater purpose, namely, so that Esther can make her way onto the scene. And that is the point of the story. The Persian king is flamboyant, but ultimately out of control. God is subtle, indeed very subtle, but ultimately in control, in complete control. Now you and I know this. So let's go up 10,000 feet, for example, from the circumstances of your life right now, that you're maybe going, where in the world is God in this? Maybe for some of you, it's you look back over your life right now, and you're like, if those certain things hadn't happened, I would have never become a follower of Jesus. If that person hadn't stepped into my life at that particular time, if I wasn't going through that particular issue, if I wasn't suffering in that particular way, I would have never given my life over to Christ. Now, in the moment, you're probably going, what in the world is going on? But doesn't the story not only of our own lives, but also the stories of the scriptures expose that God is quietly working in the unlikeliest of places? Like, I'm sure I could ask like 12 people or more here, maybe all of us, to just simply stand up and say, yeah, like my family was so unlikely. Yet this happened. Like what you don't make me necessarily realize is everybody in this room today is the product of people taking seriously the Great Commission and going and sharing it with somebody. Because the original 12 are not still sitting here. The original 11 after Judas. They're not still sitting there. The original 70. They went out and they shared the gospel and somewhere along the lines, you can go back in the history as you as a human being. You can ask the question, where did my family turn over their lives to Christ? That's a cool thing to think about. So if your family was unlikely, don't you dare submit to the unlikeliness of the people that you work with and the people that are your neighbors. Because God works in the unlikeliest of places through his providence to ultimately bring glory to himself. And the reality is, isn't this the message of the gospel? That Jesus was born in a manger? The unlikeliest of place? That he was raised 
completely part of the culture of being a craftsman or a carpenter, which was for really, a lot of times we look at the history, and it's like he was probably a mason. Who he would then become? This rabbi that would travel around and share the good news that God would act in such a way in sending Jesus, his son, not just a guy that he went, you have ultimate authority, but himself coming in human flesh to you and to me? For what purpose? Then to save humanity, to restore everything back to its original intended purpose? This is what Gregory says. We need to see our world with the eyes of faith through the lens of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection to know that God is always at work positioning things in the world and in individual lives even if we cannot see it. Behind the scenes, God is orchestrating all things to serve his greater purposes even when it means that crosses must come before resurrections. So what is the cross right now of your life? What's the situation that it feels very cross-like? I'm, I'm being persecuted. Maybe for you, it's you got family tension going on. Maybe your marriage is going through struggles. Maybe you're single and you don't want to be single. Maybe you're married on the other side. Notice how it never really ultimately can get better sometimes. It's like, I just want to be in a relationship. And then the people on the other side are like, listen, you do not want to be in a relationship. <laughs> but what is it for you? You're struggling with something. You're addicted to something. I mentioned pornography earlier, and you're like, how did he know? What is it? What is going on in your world that you're like, this is heavy. This is hard. Hear the words of the scriptures that God works all things for those who are called and that are loved and according to his purpose. He's with you. And even though there might be those moments where you're like, I don't know where he is. God, if he could work in the Persian court of a king that thought he was everything by calling his wife when he's drunk to come forward and to show herself off to his kingdom, she refuses. Boom. Esther. If he could do that, he can certainly work in the situation and the circumstances of your life. And he is. this is what the message of the gospel is. That God sent his son who came to you and to me who lived a life perfect. Why? So that you and I, that he could trade places with us. To pay a debt that we couldn't pay for ourselves. To show us grace so we can understand what it means to be loved by an all-powerful and almighty God. So I don't know where you're at today. You know, I've, I've listed some things. And you might be going, he knew. I told you, he knew. I don't know specifically, but I know that your experience probably isn't that far off from any other people's experience in this world. You know, sometimes I have people say to me, they're like, I don't know, it just felt like you were speaking right to me. It's like, yeah, because you're not so different than everybody else. We've all got stuff. So here's what we're going to do. If you've never, ever trusted in a king who went to a cross for you, you can do that today. If you're like looking to these ideologies or these powers or to business or to your job or whatever it is for your authority, for your power or for your worth, understand that it will come to an end as Xerxes and his reign came to an end. But God is still on his throne. So turn to him today. 
If you're sitting there and you're caught up in some sort of thing, there are people over here that want to pray for you. And what that means is you can just simply go, I'm just going to go get prayed for. Awesome. People want to pray for you. Why? Because God changes things. Do we believe that? Again, if he could change the situation of a Persian court where they were wasted, he can certainly act and change the situation of your life. Maybe you're struggling with something physically today and you just need to be prayed over and be healed. Come forward. Maybe there's some, maybe you've just been feeling real anxiety or stress or you've been feeling depressed. Come forward. Maybe it's just, it's, you feel like it's a very small, minuscule thing. Nothing is small and minuscule to God. Because he saw you and he saw me when we were still sinners, yet he died for us. So come forward and be prayed for. And if this is your first time today saying, I want to submit and surrender my life to Jesus Christ, the one who's truly served me as the real king, then tell us. Tell the friend who brought you. And let's get you baptized in a couple weeks where you step up and you say, I identify with Jesus and his death and resurrection and I get myself dunked in water. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you work in the unlikeliest of places. I thank you for your providence. God, I thank you for this story, God. Already, it's speaking so much, I know, into my life, and I pray the lives of others that are sitting here. And I thank you for the good news of the gospel, which is ultimately what all of these stories point to. God, in situations, Lord, where we wonder, where are you? You seem absent. I pray that we would look to the cross, that we would look to Jesus, that we'd understand, Lord, that he gives us everything that we need As we were singing earlier, Jesus, only Jesus, may that be a reflection of our hearts. God, I pray that we would confess this morning the things in the areas of our life where we have been looking to for authority, where we're looking to for identity. We've been looking to for worth and meaning and all of these things, God, that ultimately will perish and die and be no longer. God, if we find our identity in anything that is temporal, our identity is temporal. And I thank you, Lord, that we can find our identity because you've given to us, and that's eternal. So we don't need to fear death. Jesus, you came and worked in the unlikeliest of places. And all of us here in this room, at some level, are results of the unlikeliest of places. Thank you that you're at work. We love you. 